Our reading this morning is Romans chapter 4 from 1 to 25 in NIV. What shall we say that Abraham, our father, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Say, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he circumcised, after he was circumcised, or before? It was not after, but before. He received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believed but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he then also the father is of circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that come by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be the grace may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have faith in Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you father of many nations. He is their father in the sight of God, in whom he believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. 
but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, was written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who have raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. May the Lord's word be blessed. Thank you, John. Uh, well, welcome. Hello, good to see you this morning. How are we doing? We're doing well. Uh, if you're visiting with us, welcome. So glad that you're here today. Uh, my name's Jonathan. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to spend some time with you after the service, or if you can't catch me sometime during the week, I'd love that. Uh, special welcome to Pastor Stephen who is here somewhere, was here, maybe he left. Uh, there he is, he's up the back. Uh, he heard we were having a church meeting today and I heard he just couldn't stay away. <laughs> right, isn't that, yeah, anyway. All right. That was funnier in my head. Um, but uh, it's, so, it's so, so great to have you all here. It's so good to be worshiping our Lord together. Uh, and we, um, yeah, we're just grateful uh, that we have this opportunity here in this country uh, to do that. I'm gonna get rid of this because it'll get in my way. I don't remember how old I was. I want to say maybe somewhere between the ages of eight and 10. Uh, we were driving home from my grandma's house. We'd had a family gathering and uh, there's always a, you know, some sparks at a family gathering. And uh, I just remember as uh, soon as we got in the car, uh, my dad turned around and he looked at me. I don't remember what happened at all. I don't remember what happened, but he just turned around and he looked at me and he said, he said, Jonathan, I don't raise snobbly kids. I said, oh, okay. He said, you're not going to be a snobbly little brat. I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> was I? I can't remember. I must have done something. Somebody did something. But the expectation was clear. He says, look, this is not who we are. This is not what we do. And as we've been uh, looking at the first four chapters of Romans, we've been exploring this question of what it means to be a part of God's family, what it means to be a part of this transformed community. And I think what my dad was trying to convey to me in that moment was, look, this isn't the Hoffman way. This isn't, this isn't what Hoffmans do. You're not, to, you're not to be a part of that. And um, in a weird way, 30 plus years later, I think I kind of get what he meant. Um, we're in the book of Romans. I invite you, if you don't have a Bible, grab a Bible, pull out a smartphone. If you need a Bible and you want one, put your hand up. The lovely Lionel will go around and, f and find you. Uh, if you would like uh, a smartphone, if you have a smartphone, just grab, grab the phone and pull it out. Uh, Romans chapter 4 is where we'll be uh, for most of our time today. So we've been looking at what forms the transformed community. I want you to know we're not here to be a club. We're not here to just pass on traditions because it's cool to be traditional. It's not cool to be traditional, right? We're, we're, we're here because something is happening, right? God is doing something among us. We believe this. And I hope you're here because you've been captivated in some way by Jesus. 
Paul is going to enter into a discussion of a spiritual ancestor that we all have named Abraham. And so as we've been looking at our family traits, we've we've seen that we all look like rebels. We all sort of bear that resemblance. We've seen that we all are held to the same standard of righteousness to be a part of God's family. We've seen that we all have this chronic condition of sin that that is a power within us. It's its work. It enslaves us and it oppresses us. And we've also seen, as we saw last week, that we've somehow miraculously, by the grace of God come to share in this joint estate, this this grand inheritance that belongs to Jesus Christ has now been given to us by grace through faith in him. But the last thing we see is that there's actually someone in our history that we can look to, a spiritual ancestor as it were. Romans chapter 4, 1 to 25 is our text, we'll be referring to that. Last week, we tried to ask the question, how could God be our judge and our savior? And we saw that it's in Jesus. Encourage you, if this doesn't make sense, go back, listen to what we talked about last week. Because it's in Jesus that God makes us heirs of righteousness. This is an inheritance that's available to anyone by faith. And as we move forward... And we look, to, we look ahead, we just want to give you a bit of context, a bit of an overview. Paul's writing to a group of churches in Rome, and he realizes that everyone needs to hear the good news about Jesus. This gospel is good news. It's worth hearing because in it, God unleashes his power, his power to save men and women, children, anyone who would come in faith, through faith, um, save them from the wrath that is also being revealed. And as we saw last week, that now a gift of righteousness is given for all in Jesus Christ, and that is a righteousness by faith. And Paul was tackling some questions. How can anyone actually get right with God? We answered mostly that that mostly last week. There's a little bit in it today. Um, He's sort of shifting into this second question of who is really in God's family? And we should be asking, on what basis are we included in God's family? Is everyone in God's family? Just by virtue of being a human, are you part of God's family? By being a creature, creation, on what basis are we included in that? And so that's kind of where the focus of the discussion is going to be today. The big question I want to start with is whose legacy are we trying to live up to? I want you to take a moment. Whose legacy are you trying to live up to? Maybe the legacy you're trying to overcome is a bad one. Maybe you're like, hey, Jonathan, if I showed you the legacy of my family, you know why I'm working so hard right now. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get out of that shadow. Maybe you come from a great family and you, you, you've sort of come through life and you're looking around in your family tree and you see these pillars, these massive lives, all these accomplishments and you're sitting here thinking, well, I better live up to that. Maybe you say, you know what, I'll just knock all that down. I set my own legacy. I write my own story. And you're saying the expectations I'm trying to live up to are my own. But did you know God's family has a legacy? From beginning to end. To be a part of his family, there's been a certain, certain fundamental trait, a certain fundamental reality for everyone that God would call his own. And so our big idea today is that in Abraham, God has established a legacy of faith for all who would be his people. Man, I could talk to you for like two hours today, but I won't. (laughs) Right? 
But just give me 30 seconds. Abraham comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 12. He's a random guy in the middle of nowhere in Babylon, the city of Ur. And what's striking about this is what happened in chapter 11. If you've been reading the story of Genesis, you would have seen the fall and the waywardness of humanity. And you would have known, read in Genesis chapter 11, that there was a group of people who decided, hey, we can do this. And they said, we're going to make our way to heaven. We're going to gather our resources and our talents and we're going to build a tower and we're going to get to God. And they all spoke the same language and they thought we've worked out this communication thing and so we're going to get our way up to heaven and God, it says he, he stooped down and he looked at what they did and he jumbled it all up. He says, no, 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 no. You don't work your way into my kingdom. And Genesis chapter 12, onto the scene comes Abraham, who got a call from God. Abraham is our spiritual ancestor. Uh, just for, by way of an outline, he, Abraham's a bit of a spiritual father for us. Now, ladies, raise your hand if you were at One Love yesterday. All right. I heard it was fantastic. Is that, was that true? Was it really good? Yep. All right. Now, I know I heard a little bit, heard a little bit from my wife in the car on the way home. Okay. So I got a little snippet and I realized that there was a great teaching on Hagar. Okay. So what you need to understand is, as we're talking about Abraham, all right, this is not in contrast. This is not saying he's perfect. He's obviously did a lot of things that were a little bit not so good. Right. But what doesn't change was his posture of trust in the promise of God. He got a bit confused on how it was going to get worked out, but his posture of trust in the promise of God is what sets him apart in Scripture and why he can be our spiritual father, despite his many imperfections. So how does faith make us God's child? I've submitted to you, there was five, it's actually four now. <laughs> Abraham, uh, he teaches us four things about the faith that all God's people share. And the first one we've already sort of talked about, it's this, it's that the legacy of God's people is faith. The legacy of God's people is faith. If you were living in Paul's day and you were a Jew, this might rub you the wrong way. It's not to say that the Jews didn't have faith, but you might be prone to cling to something a little more tangible. You might say the legacy of us as God's chosen people is the law, the Torah, that God gave to Moses when we became his covenant people. You might be tempted to say the legacy of our people is circumcision, which is the ritual, the, the, the bodily marking of us as God's people. But the legacy from first to last is that of faith. In verses 1 to 8, Paul sort of, remember he's been having this dialogue with a Jew, this imaginary Jewish Christian who's sort of worked their way in with these Gentile Christians in Rome, and Paul sees these churches kind of struggling to, to see their unity and to see their oneness and to see the common peace that they share. And, and he sees the Jewish Christian, he imagines them sort of looking at the Gentile Christian as kind of a second-class citizen. Like, well, I know you're here, but... I mean, really, we were here first. And 
And so Paul has been engaging in a dialogue with this person, and, and he will oftentimes go to rhetorical questions, and he sort of does that again here. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Now that's your clue he's talking to Jews. He says, Abraham, our father, forefather according to the flesh. He's not talking to the Gentiles now, he's talking back to the Jews. Now Paul can say that because ethnically he's a Jew. Now, Paul's just said that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Nobody is to boast. It's apart from the law. It's apart from circumcision. He's just said that. Verse 30, there is only one God who will justify, that means to make right, who will make right the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. And Paul's like, this doesn't wipe off the law. In fact, it just upholds the law. So, Paul imagines this person saying, well, but, but, but Abraham. Abraham's very important to them. He's their hero. Paul says, you want to talk about your hero? All right, let's talk about your hero. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. So, it's, you know, Paul's pretty honest here. He's like, look, if Abraham had worked out this obedience thing, if he'd worked out how to be morally right and perfect, then you know what? He could stand among a group of people and say, I've done it and you haven't. He wouldn't be able to boast before God, but before others, he could do that. Verse 3, what does Scripture say? Oh, if you have a Bible and it's yours, underline this. What does Scripture say? Present tense. It's not what was the story. What was that old thing we heard a while ago? What is the scripture saying? A small, subtle, subtle truth packed right here. Paul understands that the story of the Bible is one story that God is speaking and continuing to say throughout all time to his people. What does the scripture say? Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Literally, it means it was reckoned. Now, you can reckon something to somebody's account. You can financially credit them. You can also reckon someone something legally. You could be adopted by some family, and you can be reckoned as their child, even though biologically there is no evidence that you are their child. Abraham is reckoned as righteous. And can I tell you, brothers and sisters, I struggled with this. I still struggle with this for the longest time because in my heart, I think I can do it. I think I can just work hard enough. I can read enough. I can learn enough. I can serve enough. I can give enough. I can, I can, I can enough. And that has somehow going to bring me into peace with God. But I'm so thankful for verse 4, which says, To the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Verse 5, however, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. What is this saying? What's Paul going on about here? Let me put it to you in a real world, real, real world example. Raise your hand if you have a job that pays you. Okay, so I'm not trying to shame anyone, right? Right? This is, but this is important for the analogy. This is important for the analogy. I know some of you are retired, right? Some of you are, that's okay, right? 
If you have a job that pays you for your work, I want you to think about the moment your paycheck hits your bank account. Now, in the old days, they used to give you this piece of paper. It was a check. You open it up, right? Nowadays, it just hits your account. I want you to think about watching your bank account for the moment that your paycheck hits. And what do you do next when that paycheck hits? Do you ring? Yes, <laughs> give it away, send it out, right? Do you pick up the phone and call your boss and say, oh, thank you. Thank you. You don't know how much this means to me. You see, now I can buy groceries for my family. Now I can pay my electric bill or part of it. Now, now I can go, you know, fill up the car. Like, thank you, thank you, thank you. Why on earth would you do this for me? No, you don't do that. It's not because you're ungrateful. I'm sure you're very grateful for the work that you have. No, it's because it's work. It's an agreement. You put in and they give you back. And this is Paul's point. Paul says, if our right standing with God is based on our performance or our earning of it, if Abraham's right standing with God was based on that, then there is no way we can call it a gift. It's not grace, folks. And then in verse 5, these amazing words, to the one who does not work, hold up. <laughs> you, mean, you mean the one who stops trying to earn God's favor? You mean the one who, who stops trying to leverage their obedience, their spirituality, their productivity, their service? This one, the one who stops leveraging that as if you're somehow sort of making God in your debt? To the one who stops doing that, but instead trusts God who justifies the ungodly. There it is in black and white. God who justifies the ungodly. How can God make right the ungodly? Listen to last week's message, all right? It has something to do with the cross and what we just celebrated. And then he brings out their next hero. Abraham was a hero. The other one is King David. What does David, excuse me, uh, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now David, by this time, he's God's anointed. He's the king. He's, he's got the whole city named after him, right? And he says, verse 7, this is from Psalm 32, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. It's the same word, justify. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will not reckon to them. So David celebrates the negative. My sin is not reckoned. It's not counted to me. Abraham represents the positive. His faith is reckoned to him as righteousness. This is a blessed state, folks. And this is what it's all about. This is our legacy. This is the family that we're in. We are in the family of people made right, not because they deserve it. We are in the family of people made right because they trusted God who said he would do it. And they believed him when he did. That's who we are. That's who we always will be. 
You, if you read your Bible as if like Old Testament is the angry God and New Testament is, is the nice sort of soft touch Santa Claus God, then you're totally missing the point. Because before the law, before circumcision, before any of this, Abraham was given a promise and he believed him. And God said, Abraham, you took me at my word. I'm going to count you as righteous. You're right with me. You're right with me because you took me at my word. Faith does what works cannot do. You can't be justified. We've already covered this. I won't spend too much time, but Paul makes the argument chronologically. The Jew who's been relying on the fact that they've been through this ritual of circumcision you might insert the Christian who's been relying on the fact that they, that they underwent the waters of baptism. Not that baptism's not important, but, but if you think that getting dunked in water is what saves you, and it's not your reliance on Jesus Christ for forgiveness and for salvation, then you have missed it. Faith does what works cannot do. No obedience, no performing of a ritual is going to get you in the door. Christ is going to get you in the door, and he's going to get you in the door because you know him. You know him because you trust him. Faith does what works cannot do. Paul just uses a simple, simple chronological argument. He says, he says, look, when was Abraham justified? When did this, when did this whole conversation with God take place? It took place before he'd even been circumcised. So effectively, Abraham's a Gentile. Your big hero, the hero of your religion, hadn't even gone through the ritual when he got the promise. He moves on to say in verses 13 to 16 that faith does what the law cannot do. Faith makes us right through a promise, through God's pledge. Through, through God saying, by grace, I will do this for you. The law says you must obey. Now, the law is important. It has a function, absolutely. Paul is not trying to say that the law doesn't stand. No, it does stand. And it's upheld by Jesus Christ. But the moment the law comes in, you and I are exposed as transgressors. And, and, and we're therefore automatically unrighteous. We, we, we don't fit it anymore. So even though it might look like the law could promise you the, being righteous, that's not its function. And in fact, if we share in all this kingdom of Jesus Christ, if we receive this goodness, this righteousness from Jesus on the basis of the law, then Paul says, guess what? It's not by a promise anymore. You don't need faith anymore. It's just you and your ability to measure up or not measure up. So faith does what the law cannot do. It justifies us through faith. It justifies us. It puts us right in God's sight. The last thing that we learn here is from Abraham, our spiritual father, about faith is that faith trusts God to make the dead live. Faith trusts God to make the dead live. Verse 17, 
excuse me, 16. Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. You might have sang this song in Sunday school, Father Abraham and many sons, many sons and daughters had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right? Abraham is the one father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. This is the God that Abraham trusted. And then in verses 18 to 22, Paul unpacks a little bit of, of what Abraham was being asked to do when God gave him this promise. Verse 18, against all hope, that is all human hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. God had told Abraham that he would be a patriarch, that there would be many descendants that came from him. Abraham's 99 years old when he gets that promise. Have you seen a 99-year-old lately? Does that strike you as the picture of virility? Have you seen a 90-year-old woman recently? Does that strike you as someone who's ready to give birth? Someone who could be the mother? No. But Abraham was told by God that he'd be the father of many nations. Now, it doesn't say that Abraham was daft. It doesn't say that he had a screw loose. It doesn't say he was a religious whack job. It says he faced the fact. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. And that Sarah was not in a position to bear children. Think of the thousands upon thousands of griefs that they bore throughout their life over this fact that they couldn't have children. And here comes God. This God who called him to pull up stakes and leave home, leave family, leave all this stuff. Here comes God. And in the middle of the night, he comes to Abraham and he says, come outside, Abraham, let's take a walk. Abraham says, all right, I've been walking with you for a while. God says, look up at the stars. Well, it's pretty nice. We don't have a lot of light pollution here. <laughs> God says, do you see all those stars? So shall your descendants be. <gasps> Far out. Is this a sick joke? Is this some kind of twisted, like, what's going on? Abraham hears that and he says, if you say it, I believe it. You say it, I believe it. God looks at him and he says, Abraham, you're my friend. 
Faith trusts God to make the dead alive. He didn't weaken in his face. He faced the facts. Verse 20, he didn't waver through unbelief. Now, that's an important phrase because we think of waver as, uh, as a measure of our emotions, right? Sometimes I feel good. Sometimes I feel bad. Sometimes I feel up. Sometimes I feel down. But the text says he didn't waver through unbelief. It's important. Unbelief is the rejection and the dismissal of God's word is true. I hope you're not here on the verge of unbelief. That's a scary place to be. As hard as it can be to, to, to hold fast to the word of God and to carry the promises of God in the midst of that, as hard as that can be to do, that is different than wavering through unbelief. Abraham's not sitting there with his arms folded saying, well, God, show me, prove it to me. Now, he held on to that promise for a long time. And in holding on to that promise, he tried to get a bit creative, didn't he? About how he was going to see it. Abraham made mistakes, absolutely. Abraham was fearful, absolutely. But there is no point where you see him let go of the promise that God was going to give him children. That wasn't his error. His error was taking it back into his own hands and saying, well, God said it, I must need to make it happen. Faith trusts God to make the dead alive. Look at the link here in verse 23. I'm oh, sorry, verse 22, Paul puts it, puts it uh, sorry, 21. <laughs> ah. Yet he did not waver regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Just want to encourage you, if you want to know what quality your faith is at and, and where you're at, apply the glory test. Apply the glory test. Who's getting the credit for what you're doing? If all this falls in line with a big paragraph under your resume, maybe you're not walking in faith. If, if to the contrary, you're out there. You're like, I'm extended. <laughs> People are looking at me like I'm crazy, like I'm some sort of fool. And all I keep telling them is, I believe God has the power to do it. And in that position and in that posture, you can say, I'm not going to get any credit out of this whatsoever because it's not really anything spectacular that I'm doing. But I know that God will come through on his word. Who gets the glory in that scenario? Absolutely he does. Right? The glory test. It's a good, it's a good, sort, of, it's a, it's a good sort of revealer of where you're leaning, right? <laughs> if I'm leaning on myself, then I'm usually trying to tick a few boxes for me. Give myself a few gold stars. Being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Oh, my heart breaks for us. I'm going to get real with you for a minute. My heart breaks for us in Western Sydney. I grieve it in myself and I see it all around. I see it, I see it in us in our church. What are we actually doing that we need to rely on God for? Look at what Abraham did. He was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he'd promise. 
He had put his life in the hands of God Almighty. And he said, this is not going to be my power. It's only your power that's going to do it. And my fear for us and my fear for myself is that we have been discipled by the culture so much that we get used to being comfortable. And that we would settle for a comfortable life. And I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you. So I ask the question again, what are we leaning on God for? What do we need him to do? Is there a promise? We're waiting for him to make true. Come back in a second. Notice verse 23, Paul says, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us. Isn't this amazing? Paul says it's recorded in Scripture, this conversation between God and Abraham. It's recorded in Scripture not just for, not just for Abraham in that moment and for his people, but Paul's telling the church, this is for the church. This is a church conversation that God had with Abraham. Why? What's the connection, Paul? It was also for us us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. The key link between what Abraham went through and what the Christian is asked to do is that word dead. God spoke a promise to Abraham that Abraham had to look at his death and say God's going to bring life out of this death. And so too the church looks at a crucified Jesus. And we look at the crucified Lord and the world says, you're worshiping a dead guy. You're singing and bowing down before a dead man. How foolish you are. And Paul tells the Roman Christians who didn't have the opportunity that the first disciples did to see Jesus in the 40 days after his resurrection. He's looking at them and he's saying, God wrote this for you because he knew you were going to have to look at death and say God will bring life out of this death. And so I ask you today, what death have you not faced? I bet all of us could tell a story of death in our own life where we had to look at something that died and we had to say, I grieve this. I, lo I lament over this. Kids, you came in at a great time. I want to shift for a minute. And I want to tell you a story about one death and then four conversations that came out of it. We talked about a conversation that God had with Abraham where Abraham had to face his death. There's four conversations that take place in John chapter 11 around the death of one of Jesus' friends named Lazarus. If you have a Bible, flick over to John 11 or jump on your smartphone. So Jesus is traveling with his disciples and He's making his way to a village called Bethany, and they're not really understanding what he's saying. Jesus is being a bit cryptic. And so in verse 14, John records that Jesus said plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus says, my friend Lazarus is dead, and you and I are going to go. 
And we're going, to, we're going to go on a journey together so that we can believe. Now, Thomas is the first one to enter into the conversation. And some of you may be a bit like Thomas. You're a little bit jaded. You're a little bit cynical. You're, you're walking with Jesus, absolutely. You're on the road. But look what Thomas says. Then Thomas, verse 16, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, notice he didn't voice it to the Lord. <laughs> he mutters to the disciples, he says, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas is like, we're going to Bethany, near Jerusalem. Jesus, they don't like you very much over there. Lazarus is dead. Thomas is like, all right, well, I guess that's where we're going, so we can die too. You know, some of us, I fear, we've been hanging out with Jesus for a long time, and we've been staring at the reality of death, and we've been holding on to fear for a very, very, very long time. And we hold on to fear, we clutch it, we imbibe it as our reality, it's the water we drink and the air we breathe, and holding on to fear, yeah, we're still, we got sort of one hand on Jesus, we got one hand on fear, and Jesus says, hey, there's death over there, let's go so that you can believe, and we're like, sure, I guess we'll die too, whatever. That's the first conversation. The next conversation is with Lazarus' sister, Martha. Martha sees Jesus coming. She runs out to him and she says, listen to what she says. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Martha is saying, Jesus, it's your fault. You didn't show up. If you were here, this wouldn't have happened. Now, Martha's different from Thomas because she's not like, well, I guess we're all going to die anyway. She says, look, but I know, I know, I know you can do something. Snap your fingers, Lord. Snap your fingers. Ask the question. Just do it. Do it. Jesus has an interesting conversation with her. He says, your brother will rise again. Simple fact. That's what you want. He will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise on the last day. And then Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, you got great theology, Martha. Good job. But let me tell you, do you know me? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the Son? And can I encourage you, if you're someone who's disappointed with God, it might not be your theology that's wrong. You might just need to spend some more time with Jesus. You might not need to read the book 12 Answers to the World's Common Problems about Evil and Suffering. You may need to just get alone in your closet and get on your knees and pray and say, Lord, will you come meet me because I've forgotten who you are. And the third conversation Jesus has is with Martha's sister named Mary. And ironically, she says the same thing. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But she's not coming with a demand. She's coming with a lament. She's grieving the loss. She's not even at the point of wanting to move forward. She's still caught up in the sorrow. She's still caught up in the wallowing. Not wallowing in a bad way, but just the grief that overwhelms. Jesus doesn't say anything. 
he weeps. What a comfort. What a comfort. Jesus hasn't forgot about faith. He hasn't forgot about the disciples. He hasn't forgot about what he's doing. But he sees someone who's overwhelmed with sorrow. Who's just, the disappointment has just broken over them so many times. And they can't get up. And he takes a moment to cry. Jesus is saying, hey, it's death. Let's get over it. He weeps and then he says, where have they laid him? Where have you laid him? The last conversation is a conversation that Jesus has with his father. And I want you to remember what Abraham did. Abraham, believing that God had the power to do what he said he would do, trusted God. And he gave glory to him. Listen to what Jesus says. After he gets him to roll away the stone, Jesus looks up to heaven and he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. In verse 40, Jesus had told them, he said, didn't I tell you that you walk with me, I would show you the glory of God. Jesus has a conversation with his father where he's celebrating him and he's saying, thank you, God, because these people are going to see your glory. Jesus here is the one with faith like Abraham. He knows that God's going to do what he said he would. All right, I'll finish on this slide. Sorry, second to last slide. (laughs) All right, what is faith and what's it not? Faith is not whistling in the dark. It's a great line from John Stott. You ever been scared in the dark and you sort of sing a happy tune? You know, (laughs) I ho, I ho, off to work I go. Hope this person doesn't come out of an alley and get me, right? It's not whistling in the dark. That's not what faith is. It's not primarily an emotion. Now, faith can be linked to emotions that you have, but faith itself is not an emotion. Faith is a posture of active trust. It's a choice you and I make. Faith is not a manifestation of positive thinking. What what Paul is saying here is not that you believe it and God will make it appear. Bang. No, God's the one who initiates the promise. And it's not a blind leap. A blind leap is is often described as, I have no idea how this is going to turn out. I have no way of knowing what's going to happen. I am totally in the dark, and I'm just going to abandon all of my volition, and I'm just going to just throw myself off this cliff. No. Abraham knew what he was looking for. So too we know what we are looking for. We are looking for the day when we will stand in the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ. So faith is anchored to the word of God. You see, it's a response to the promise of God. It's living now or living presently in the certainty of God's future. And finally, it's, it's the basis of our belonging. You see, the community of believers is, everyone who's here is here because they believe. That's what gets you in the door. Now, sure, 
There's people who might be imposters. There's people who might fake it. There's people who, you know, say one thing and do another. But that doesn't change the legacy of God's family and the fact that it has been by faith from first to last. So what's the bottom line? Move through these slides. <laughs> the bottom line is that God wants you to trust him implicitly. Implicitly. Look, I don't know for certain, but something to me, I think this is a little bit of what Jesus had in mind when he put a child in the midst of the disciples and he says, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you've got to become like this child. Love is built on trust. You can't love a God that you do not trust. But we can trust a God who bleeds for us. Graham Hill uh, said to me in the prayer room earlier before the service, he said, Jonathan, you know, sometimes we just need to put our name in the Bible, put our name in Scripture. And I said, that's a good idea. I want you to try it now. Verse, Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He, that is Jesus, was delivered over for Jonathan's sins. And he was raised for Jonathan's justification. Try that. Romans 4.25. Jesus was delivered over for your sins. Do you believe that? I hope you do. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Our Father, we stop and we just take a moment to say thank you for the great gift you've given. Lord, may we never tire, but may we rejoice as we trust in you. Thank you for your many blessings. Most of all, your son, who was delivered over for our sins and raised to life for our justification. We praise you in his name. Amen.